Good morning, everyone. My name's Dave. I'm one of the elders here. And like probably many of you, over the last few weeks, I've been working on my taxes. There, as a reminder, tax day is Tuesday. You have two more days, either file or request an extension. And it can be challenging doing taxes, depending on your financial situation. I realize everybody's in a different situation, but it can be difficult whether using a software or an accountant or whatever, doing it on your own. You have to work through line by line, question by question, diligently trying to get to the end. And one of the most important parts about the taxes is actually the instructions. For every form, there's a corresponding set of instructions. And if you fail to fill out your taxes according to the instructions, there can be very real consequences. The government knows what you earned and they can send you threatening letters. I've received one of those letters. I can tell you that story uh, another time if you're interested. But today we're gonna see, as we've been hearing about the story of Noah and how he followed God's instructions to him. He obeyed the Lord. As Dane mentioned, we've been in a series in Genesis, which we've titled God, the Creator and the Redeemer. And today we're going to be specifically in Genesis 6, verses 9, and then going all the way into chapter 7, verse 24. So I encourage you to turn there in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible of your own, we would love to give you one. There in our entryway, we have some hardback black Bibles. Feel free to take one of those as a gift. As a brief recap of where we've been in Genesis, in Genesis 5, we were introduced to the character of Noah. And then Dane preached for us two weeks ago in Genesis 6, verses 1 through 8, we saw the increasing corruption of the world, how these sons of God had taken daughters of men in marriage. We're not exactly sure what that means. Dane talked about some of the possibilities, but it's evidence of people committing sexual sin and the perversion of God's good design. So now the story continues in Genesis 6. We're going to pick up here in verse 9. So let me read this for us. We should have it projected as well. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth, destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. And take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. 
He did all that the Lord had commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of clean animals, the male and his mate, a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of the clean animals and of the animals that are not clean, and of the birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On that very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark, they and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out everything that was on the face of the ground, man and animals, and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left, and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. This may be a familiar passage to some of you. We're going to explore this passage together in three sections. First, we're going to see how God promises judgment and covenant. Then we're going to see how Noah prepares obediently, how he follows the instructions. Then we're going to see God execute judgment on those who reject him and deliverance for those who receive him. So let's look first at how God promises judgment and covenant. So looking here at the, the first portion, we see in verse 11, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence. God saw the, the earth. Behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh was corrupt in his, um, on their way in the earth. And then God says to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. Okay, so that's God pronouncing judgment. He's seen the corruption. He's seen what's happening. And he's saying, this can't continue. I need to execute my justice on this rampant sin, this corruption that's going on in Noah's day. 
Now, it's important as well to understand how does this apply to our day? What's, what's our, our experience today? How is it similar to Noah's day? And with that, I want to turn to Matthew 24 and read a little bit about what Jesus says, speaking about his second coming. So this is Jesus teaching the people about his second coming. He says, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were in the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. So Jesus is making a direct parallel between Noah, what was going on in his day, and then what's going on in our day today, after the first coming of Christ. So let's look a little bit at what's going on. What specifically were the sins that God is calling out in Noah's time? Well, as I mentioned, Dane had read for us the first portion of Genesis 6, where it speaks about the sons of God, the daughters of men, being taken in marriage, sexual immorality. Then we also see specifically here in verse 6, verse 11, it says, the earth was filled with violence. So we see sexual immorality, violence. It was true in Noah's day. It's true in our day as well. We can think about God's good design for marriage, as Dane had mentioned two weeks ago, one woman, one man in the covenant of marriage. That's the right place according to God's design for sex. But if we think about our culture, it's certainly not the case. Whether it's pornography, premarital sex, men having sex with men, women having sex with women, transgender, we see a whole variety of ways in which people today are living in sexual immorality. Think about violence as well. We don't know exactly what was going on in Noah's day, various battles, wars. We see violence in our own day, whether it's tragic events in the news in our own country, whether it's looking at a broader globe of wars, gang tensions. The reality is that these issues that the people of Noah's day were facing are also present in our own day. And just as Jesus spoke about the evil in Noah's day, so our day has a comparable evil. But it might be tempting to try to make a comparison between ourselves and the people then. You might think, well, look, I'm not that bad. And I'll, I'll give you a story about this. When I was in high school, I had a period of time. I'd, I'd grown up in a Christian family, grown up attending church, but I had a period of time where I was really wrestling with doubts and questions in my faith. Not that I have everything figured out today, but at the time it was really poignant. And I would go and read atheist websites. And on one of the websites, I read something that really has stuck with me to this day. The author of the website said, I'm not rejecting God because of some immorality in my life that if I accepted God, I'd have to change. You see, I'm faithful to my wife. I pay my taxes. If I were to accept God, I really wouldn't have to change much. And it's a, it can be a tempting thought to think, well, look, Sexual morality, I've been pretty good. Violence, I haven't killed anybody. But there's one other thing in this passage that I want to highlight. It comes just a little before the section we read. But it's verse 5 of chapter 6. It says, 
The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of his thoughts, of his heart, was evil continually. So sandwiched in between this conversation about sexual immorality and violence is something that goes to a deeper level. That's speaking to the heart. When we're thinking about taxes, Jesus was asked about taxes. He said, should we, they asked him, should we pay taxes to Caesar? He said, well, whose image is on the coin? We have this on our money today. We have images of different political leaders. They said Caesar's. He said, well, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. In Genesis 1, we had read about how people were created in the image of God. What Jesus was saying was, God doesn't just want you to fulfill your minimum obligations to society, to pay your taxes. God actually has a call on your very being, your very life, your thoughts, your attitudes, your emotions belong to God. You're stamped with the image of God. He's calling you not just to try to fulfill your minimum obligations in society, to try to be your idea of a good person. He's calling you to follow him. You see, we see the contrast not only in the sin of the people, but in the way Noah is described. Verse 9 says, Noah walked with God. Noah had a relationship with God. The people of his day, yes, they were committing sexual immorality. Yes, they were committing violence. Yes, they had evil intentions in their hearts. But they'd missed their core purpose of their being, which was to have a relationship with God. They'd missed the greatest commandment to love God. And all these other things came as a result. So thinking back to that comment that I'd read on the website, it's some sort of fundamental misunderstanding of what it means to follow God. It's not about checking off a list of good deeds. It's about giving your whole life, your thoughts, your intentions. The intentions of the heart that are called out here, Jesus really elevates in both these areas of sexual morality and violence. When Jesus asked about adultery, he said, well, if you lust with your heart, if you think in your mind, you've already committed adultery. Talking about murder, Jesus said, if you're angry, you've already committed murder. He's ramping it up, the thoughts, the intentions of the heart. Now, all of a sudden, we're all guilty. Now, all of a sudden, we can't say, oh, I'm better than those people in Noah's day. That's pride. We're all sinful. All of us deserve God's judgment. All of us are actually, apart from Christ, in the exact same position as the corrupt culture in Noah's day. All of us deserve God's judgment just as much as they did. But we see God promises not only this judgment, he also promises a covenant. He promises a way for Noah to be rescued through this ark. And then specifically, in verse 18, he says, but I will establish my covenant with you. Very interesting, this language of covenant. What, let's unpack that a little further. What happens in Noah's relationship with God? Of course, God rescues him through the ark, but there's kind of an often overlooked detail here. In, in chapter 7, verse 3, it says, Noah's supposed to bring seven pairs of birds. And, and just before that, in verse 2, he's supposed to bring seven pairs of clean animals. I thought, if you remember as a kid, if you heard about this story as a kid, there was two by two, all, all the little animals, right? Now there's supposed to be seven pairs of certain kinds. What's with that? Well, we're going to fast forward, and we're going to hear more about this next week, in the coming weeks. But in Genesis 8, verse 20, Noah builds an altar to the Lord. He takes some of the, every clean animal, every clean bird, and he offers it as sacrifices to the Lord. So God was planning ahead for Noah to offer a sacrifice of some of these clean animals. 
And this, this language of the covenant and these sacrifices, it's a highway, point us straight forward to Jesus. We just celebrated the death and resurrection of Jesus on Good Friday and Easter. Jesus, before he was killed, he celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples, a celebration of another clean animal, a lamb that was killed as a sacrifice to take away sins. And Jesus said, here's the cup of a new covenant in my blood. Jesus is the ultimate clean animal who was killed on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. So this covenant that God makes with Noah is not saying, Noah, you haven't sinned at all. That's why I'm going to rescue you. No, it's about God making atonement for the sins that Noah had. Noah was a sinner too. We don't see specific sins called out in this chapter, but if you fast forward, chapter 9, we're going to get to Noah gets drunk in front of his sons. So he was a sinful man as well. He needed sacrifice to pay for his sins, just like we do as well. The reality is, as we've seen, all of us are sinful before God. We all deserve separation from God. God is perfectly holy. We see that in this chapter, the contrast between the sin of the people and the holiness of God. Apart from Christ, all of us deserve even eternal separation from God. But the hope of this passage, this pointing forward to Christ, is that because what Jesus did on the cross, that clean animal, died, paid the penalty for our sins, there's this new covenant where by faith, if we receive Jesus by faith, he will forgive our sins, give us eternal life. So we see here this first section. God promises judgment and a covenant. Now we're going to see, we're going to talk about how Noah prepares obediently. As I read through the passage, we saw multiple times the same phrase repeated over and over, four times. He did it as the Lord commanded him. Built the ark, went into the ark. In fact, if you look at verses 6 through 10, it starts off saying, Noah was 600 years old when the floods came. And then it kind of describes, all right, he had his sons and his wives. They went in, the clean animals as the Lord commanded him. But then in verses 11 through 16, it's a little bit longer. What happens? It just expands on everything in the previous paragraph. It's the 600th year of Noah's life in the second month, in the 17th day of the month. It names his sons, but it basically says the exact same thing, but just a little longer, and it talks about how he did it as the Lord commanded him. What's going on here? As Moses is crafting this story for the original audience, he didn't have section headers, bold, underlined, exclamation points, emojis, this is what he's doing to kind of say, look, pay attention. This is important. This is significant, what Noah did. Let's talk a little bit more about that, some of the aspects of Noah's obedience that's so emphasized in this passage. Well, a little bit of background on Noah himself. At the end of Genesis 5, Noah's father, Lamech, speaks about Noah in a prophetic way. In, in, in Genesis 5, 29, he says, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. So there's a promise given by his Noah's father about Noah being a deliverer. As I reflected on, on, on the flood story, I was kind of thinking, like, couldn't God have done this a little bit differently? Like, he could have said, all right, Noah, I'm going to send this flood tomorrow. And there's going to be a chariot of fire with angels. It's going to rescue you and your family. I'm going to take you up, you know, in the heavens while all the flood's happening, and I'm going to bring you back down safe. God didn't do that. 
God involved Noah in the plan. God had a purpose for Noah as a deliverer for his family, for the righteous people of that time. So Noah himself also points forward to Christ as, as the ultimate deliverer. Now, let's talk a little bit about building the ark. The ark was a difficult project. It says it was 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, 30 cubits high. A cubit is sort of the span from your, your elbow to the tip of your finger. So 300 of those, 50 of those, 30 of those, this is, this is a big boat. And it's, it's significant that not something you build in a day. Uh, a little bit on the chronology here. At the end of Genesis 5, it says, Noah was 500 years old when he fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then in God's announcement to Noah about the flood, he mentions his sons, and he mentions his sons' wives. So it would have taken his sons some amount of time to kind of grow up and get wives. And then it says, Noah was 600 years old when the flood came. So we're guessing on the timeline here. But hypothetically, let's say his sons were 30s, 20s, something like that. That still leaves like 60 to 70 years to construct this boat from when the announcement was made to when the flood comes. We don't know the exact chronology, but likely decades of planning, preparation, harvesting lumber, purchasing lumber, uh, you know, figuring out the pitch, how are you going to get the animals? Do you have to stage the animal for a little while? I, we don't know all the details. This is a complicated, large, difficult project. And the faithfulness that God asked Noah to have actually parallels something that Jesus said. So I want to turn back briefly to Matthew chapter 24. So this is in the same passage where Jesus is talking about his second coming. He had just talked about uh, how in the days of Noah, similar to his own day, his coming is going to be like the flood. But then he says in verse 45, he says, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Jesus then expands on that little message in two more parables in Matthew 25. The parable of the ten virgins who are bridesmaids waiting for the wedding. And some who are wise, they bring extra oil. And they're able to go into the celebration. Some who are foolish, they run out of oil. They're left out in the cold, in the darkness. Rejection, judgment. Very similar parable after that, the parable of the talents. This is a popular one for many of us. Master entrusts servants with a certain amount of money to go trade, to go earn. Comes back, some have been faithful have earned what they have risked, have conducted business, have taken good care of the master's talents that he entrusted them with. One hadn't, just hit it in the ground. He's judged. So we see Jesus giving a very similar sort of message to what God gave to Noah to faithfully prepare for the coming judgment. Noah had to build this ark. Likely was a very difficult, possibly repetitive task possibly boring at times. He might have got splinters. He might have been trying to grow trees. We don't, we don't know all the details. But it's helpful to ask us, as we think about our own lives, our own desire to be faithful, what are some of the difficult, challenging things God may be calling you to do? Perhaps it's a hard relationship you're in, where you know you need to keep forgiving this person, keep working with them, but it's difficult. Perhaps it's serving in 
more mundane ways in the church. We do need more people on, on the tech team and assistance at Beacon Kids, if that's something you're interested in. Sometimes part of running the church can be difficult behind-the-scenes kind of work. Maybe it's your own job. Maybe you kind of feel like, man, this job is boring. This is annoying. This is not where I want to be. But perhaps God has you there to be a blessing for others, to, to provide for those in need. We also see there was another aspect here, that the ark was a witness. Now, we get a little more clarity as we read the New Testament on this. There's a couple passages written by Peter that also mention Noah. 1 Peter 3.20 speaks about God being patient as the ark was being prepared. God was being patient with the people there while the ark was being prepared, giving them a window of opportunity to repent. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 10, also make this connection between the final judgment and the flood. And there, there's a very interesting phrase that Peter uses about Noah. He said he was a herald of righteousness. A herald, someone that announces a message. So what Peter is saying, something that's actually not explicitly said in the text in Genesis, but Peter's giving us a little bit of extra clarity here, that Noah was actually a witness to the people around him. The ark would have been a very tangible witness, but Noah was also speaking. He was teaching people what was going on. Probably an unpopular thing, if you think about it, to try to build an ark, a huge boat where there's no water. Probably raise some questions, raise some eyebrows, probably some mocking as well. But Noah was giving people an invitation to repent of their sins and to join him in building this ark and being saved. So I want to ask us as well, as we think about our time, who in our lives can we seek to share the gospel with? Perhaps it's a friend, a colleague, who you could just initiate lunch with, get to know them a little bit better, ask them about their spiritual background, ask for permission to share about your faith, talking about this message we've discussed about how God created us, how all people are sinful, how they have a real need of salvation through Christ, and how they need to receive that by faith, to be saved for eternal life rather than eternal separation from God. But if you're like me, you might be a little nervous going into a conversation like this. What if somebody rejects me? What if somebody doesn't like me? Likely Noah can be an example to us as well. If he had to endure decades of building this boat, he probably got repeated questions. What are you doing, man? This is crazy. What are you thinking? Is God really going to send a flood? He didn't do it last year. He's probably going to do it next year. He probably got these types of questions. And, and he can be an example for us of what it looks like to step out in faith and explain the gospel to others, even in the midst of a culture and people who many of them are going to reject it. But it's our prayer that God can use us, just like he used Noah to deliver some, that God can use us to deliver some people as well as we share our faith. One other aspect about Noah's obedience was that, as we can see in this passage, Noah seems to be doing this quickly, confidently, directly. We don't hear anything about Noah wavering, asking questions. It reminds me of an experience I had when I was in college. I had a mentor through a campus ministry. And I got, to, I got to know this man over the years as well. And he had kids. And he said, when he was raising his kids, he would teach them about obedience. And he said, there's three things I want my kids to do related to obedience. 
I want them to obey right away, all the way, and with a happy heart. That's what God wants as well when he thinks about us, when he calls us to obey him. He doesn't want us to kind of procrastinate, to say, ah, I, you know, God, I'll spend some more time praying. I'll reach out to that friend, share my faith, but I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it next week. I'm busy right now. God calls us to really obey right away, all the way with a happy heart. We see in this passage this repeated phrase, Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Throughout the Bible, there's been all number of characters that obey in limited ways. God uses us in our flaws, our sins. But Noah can be an example of what it looks like to obey right away. All our indications here say God told him to build an ark, he got started, and he kept working on it. God told him to go in, he went in. We also see here another aspect of Noah's obedience. He wasn't alone. He had a community. Can you imagine trying to build a massive boat by yourself? How would you even, like, join the wood together? Noah had his sons, his wife, and their wives. He had a community that in all likelihood was together with him in building this boat. It was a difficult task to put together this ark, to assemble the animals, to get all the food, to get everything together. And as we walk with the Lord, it can be a challenging task as well. We've talked about some of those difficult things that God can call us to in our everyday. We've talked about the challenge of being a witness to others and, and some of the um, social anxiety that we can have with that. As a community, we can do these things more effectively to have friends who are praying for you, saying, yeah, I'm going to pray for you as you have that lunch. I'm going to join you and we'll have lunch together with that non-Christian friend. Talk to them about the gospel. Or I want to encourage you, help you through this challenging situation you're working through. The church can be this community that supports us. And so I want to ask you as well, how might you be more connected to a community? Perhaps that's attending a discipleship group. We have women's, men's discipleship groups here at Beacon or a community group. So we see here how God had promised judgment and a covenant we see how Noah had prepared obediently. Now we're going to talk about how God executes this judgment on those who reject him, but deliverance for those who accept him. So we've seen that announcement. We've seen Noah build the ark. We've seen him get in the ark. And then in chapter 7, verse 16, we see this phrase, and the Lord shut him in. There's a finality here. There was a period of time when God was waiting patiently. Noah was pleading out to people. He was sharing the message with them. But there comes a time when the door to the ark is shut. There's a finality here. There's a finality in our own world. Or at the end of our lives, the return of Christ, there's a limited window of opportunity to trust in Christ, to repent of sins, to believe in him for eternal life and to, be, to escape this judgment. There will be a day when it's too late. There may, we don't know. Were there people that as it started raining, they're like, wait, 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 Noah, I want to get on. It's too late. The door was shut. That window had closed. He didn't, they didn't want to get on all along and help, help build in those decades before, and it was too late. We see also in verse 17, the flood continued 40 days on the earth. So Noah had been having this long sequence of preparation. Now he had endurance of a slightly different kind. It's raining 
it's flooding, this ark is rising, and he's got his close family members cramped on a boat with a bunch of animals. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Would you like to be on a, on a boat with your close family members for 150 days with a bunch of animals? <clears throat> it, was, it was probably challenging. Um, but Noah, Noah had to continue in faith just as he had in his obedience. In Noah's initial obedience leading up to the flood, it required faith. He couldn't just think, okay, I'm going to do this because this makes intellectual sense. He had to say, I'm trusting what God said about this coming judgment. I'm going to build this ark by faith. And ultimately, our obedience needs to be empowered by God, and it takes faith. And Noah enduring the flood as well required a level of faith to continue taking care of the animals, taking care of his family until it finally subsided. This passage really highlights the sobering reality of judgment. Verse 21 says, All flesh die that moved on the earth, birds and livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Major finality of sobering judgment on sin. Sometimes we can feel uncomfortable with this. And I think it, when we're uncomfortable with this, it actually ties back to that excuse-making I was talking about earlier. If I'm a good person, if I've paid my taxes... Do I deserve eternal separation from God? Do I deserve judgment? Well, that's the mindset. If I'm thinking I'm a good person, maybe not, but that's a fundamental misunderstanding. I'm made in the image of God, stamped with his image. He's called us to live for him in every thought, every intention, every word, and we've all fallen short of that. If we could see the perfect holiness of God, we would realize just how, ju how much judgment makes sense, just how just it is. But it's our excuse-making that continuously makes us want to minimize our own sin and therefore minimize the need for judgment. Another aspect, though, with judgment is we actually all really do kind of long for justice. Our own understanding of sin is, as tainted as it is, it's not totally gone. When we see something that's wrong, when we see someone being abused, when we see poor being taken advantage of, when we see a powerful country invade a weak country, we recognize in our hearts this isn't right. And we've seen in our own world how often the people who perpetrate those crimes find some way to manipulate the system. We can't seem to fully get justice. It happens in such limited ways in our world. And it makes us long for a greater justice. It makes us long for the God who can bring final justice, just as he brought in Noah's time and as Jesus will when he comes back. I want to talk a little bit as well about a question you might have as you read this passage, speaking about the flood. How does this relate to geology and science? That's a good question because this flood is a historical event. Just like the death and resurrection of Christ, this is a real thing that happened in our world. So it makes sense to ask, as we go out in our world and look at it, how does it relate to the Bible? If that's something that's in your heart that you're processing, wrestling with, myself, Dane, Dylan, we would love to sit down, have a conversation with you, talk through that. We don't have all the answers. We're trusting that God does. Sometimes God doesn't give us all the answers we wish for. That's the other, that's the other challenge with that. But that's an important question to ask. And if you're not a believer today, I'm so thankful that you've joined us. I want to invite you to consider this reality, as we've talked about, the reality of sin, separation from God, and of a coming judgment for those who reject Christ. 
And I want to invite you, I want to challenge you to put your faith in Jesus. And that's something you're not ready to do. We'd love to journey with you. We'd love to continue to talk with you about what it looks like to follow Jesus and to continue to investigate him. The other thing with this flood story is it should invite us to worship. We see with the powers of the flood, God's creative power, his holiness, his righteousness, his sovereignty, his infinity on display. When we see that little ark floating above, we see his love, his grace, his kindness, his mercy, his patience. It can bring us to a greater sense of awe and worship of God. We just celebrated Good Friday, Easter, for the death and resurrection of Jesus. But what's the day in the Christian calendar we celebrate his return? Well, we don't know. We don't know the day or the hour. We just, heard, we just read about that in Matthew 24. We don't know. We can't celebrate a certain day because it hasn't happened yet. We don't know when it's going to happen. It's going to come like a flood all of a sudden in an unexpected time. So we're called to actually live every single day of the calendar. Today, the rest of today, and the rest of our lives in light of that second coming of Christ. The reality that he is coming back one day, that we should look forward to this. Ultimately, this God who came to earth as a humble baby who died as a criminal's cross, he's coming back one day as a conquering king. Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you for this message of the flood of Noah, well-known passage, Lord. I pray that we would be aware more deeply of the reality of our sin, the reality of our need for you, and the reality of your mercy, your kindness through Christ. And Lord, I pray that we would live our lives faithfully, just as Noah obeyed your commands, faithfully prepared, was a witness to those around him. Lord, I pray we would live that out in our lives. In your name I pray. Amen.